Bibles, please open up to Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, and we'll look at the message for this morning as we continue our study through the book of Acts on through the New Testament. I entitled the message this morning, Paul Turns the World Upside Down, but in actuality, he's turning it upside right because this world is upside down right now. It is a mess. It is twisted, it's perverted, it's violent, it's divided. Uh, you know, it, it, it's the worst, well, in my lifetime that I've ever seen it. And the only thing that's going to fix it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Changed hearts. As Warren Weary says, the heart of the problem is the problem with the heart. So let's begin with chapter 17 as we continue now with Paul's second missionary journey. Chapter 17 describes Paul's ministry in three cities, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. And it shows how some of the people in those cities responded to God's word. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, um, you know that when you've shared the gospel with somebody, when you've shared God's word with them, you've probably experienced different responses to the word of God. Luke didn't give us a lot of detail, but as we study, study three different responses, we can see our world today. That will help us to better understand what we should expect when we witness for Jesus Christ today, when we tell people about the Lord. Let's begin with verses 1 through 4 of chapter 17. And it reads, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as his custom was, went into them. And for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So you see here, it says, Some were persuaded, and a great multitude came to Christ. This describes, this, verses 1 through 4 describes the ministry that Paul got involved in, in ministering in the synagogues. Four words show us how Paul gave the gospel in the synagogue. In verses 2 and 3, notice he used the words, he reasoned, <clears throat> explaining, demonstrated, and preached. First he reasoned, or he was dialoguing with the people. This involves questions and answers. Paul would teach, they would ask questions, he would answer. The second word is explaining or interpreting. When Paul, Paul spoke the gospel, he explained it, he interpreted what it meant. Third, demonstrating the word of God. In other words, proving what it said. The Greek word demonstrating means to bring proof. It means to lay alongside as evidence. And the fourth word in verse 3 is preach. This means to declare openly in a distinct way. So it shows us that our faith is not to be hidden, 
but it's to be declared for all to see. We read in Psalm 40, verse 10, the psalmist says, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. In other words, the psalmist was not a closet Christian. He said, I didn't hide your righteousness. I declared your faithfulness. I did not conceal your loving kindness. He was open about this Christ, the, 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 the God that he loved, the God that he served. We are to have that same boldness. We're not to hide the gospel. We are to declare it. We're not to conceal it. We're not to be closet Christians. It says in verse 2, Paul reasoned. <clears throat> Paul reasoned with them, notice where? Out of the scriptures. Paul did not say, well, I think this is what the Bible says. And well, I think and I believe this is what the Bible says. And well, you know, I, I... no, he said he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. He had a basis, he had a standard for what he believed. Paul's message was supported by Scripture, by the Word of God, and there were scrolls of Scripture in the synagogue which helped Paul refer to Scripture. Again, we are not giving our opinion of, of what we believe. We are giving God's Word. We are explaining the Scriptures. This is the basis for what I believe. Not only do you have to have the right message, but you also have to have courage. You also need boldness. If a believer is going to shake the world, you might have the right message, but if you don't have the boldness to preach it, what good is the message? It's useless. Preaching the truth with boldness like Paul did can change the world, and the world needs changing badly. Now, some Christians believe we shouldn't offend believers. Instead, we should talk nice to them. We should focus only on what Jesus has to offer the sinner to make his life better here and in eternity. Don't upset them. Don't make them feel bad. Don't make them feel guilty. Make them feel good. Well, that would be fine if it was a reality. But you, you preach this this. this you know, gospel of, of, of peace and never have any problems. And, and, and when, if they come to Christ ex, expecting a, a, to, to have a, a wonderful life and no problems, well, when they do have them, what are they going to think? What are they going to believe? Some Christians believe, like I said, we shouldn't offend them. And, we, we, and when I say that, I don't mean that we're going to offend them on purpose, that we want to offend them. But when you preach truth, a lot of people don't like truth, and truth offends. That's the problem with the world today. Truth is offending a lot of people today, and that's one reason they don't like Christianity, they don't like the Word of God, they don't like Christ. That's why they crucified him back in his day. They didn't like the truth that he spoke. We want to hear nice things, good things. Now, to, to preach to the unbeliever that he is a sinner, which the Bible says, and that his sinful life is an offense to a holy God, which the Bible teaches, and to say he's to mourn for his sin, which the Bible teaches, and to repent or go to hell, which the Bible teaches, that's considered a poor witnessing technique by many Christians. But this way of evangelizing is supported by Scripture. The true gospel must offend the unbeliever by making him face his sin and judgment. 
You see, they need to know why Jesus came. They need to know why Jesus died on a cross. Because we're sinners. We sin, and that's an offense to God. Paul, said, uh, Paul quoted in Romans 9.33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, speaking of Christ. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Peter quoted the same Old Testament passage, which was Isaiah 28.16, as well as Psalm 118.22 and Isaiah 8.14. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. 1 Peter 2, 6-8, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Notice, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Sinners are a constant offense to God. And they need to know that God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7, 11. And Paul did this for three Sabbaths, it says in verse 2. Now when it says Paul did this for three Sabbaths, this doesn't mean that he stayed only three, we- uh, three weeks in Thessalonica. Paul carried on the work focusing on the Jews for three Sabbaths. And then he turned to the Gentiles and he ministered to them for some time after that. And the subject of Paul's ministry at the synagogue was Jesus Christ. That was the subject of Paul's message. That should always be the subject of our message. That should always be the key focus of what we share. Jesus Christ. Because he is the message. He is the one that we need to know. And so, again, uh, Jesus Christ was Paul's ministry, that was what he preached in the, uh, in the synagogue. First, he preached the passion of Christ. In verse 3, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer. Paul preached the crucifixion of Christ and he showed why it is necessary, why it was necessary for salvation. Second, he preached the power of Christ. Verse 3 said, rising again from the dead. The power of Christ to rise the dead, raise the dead. This fact is necessary if Christ is to save. And that's why the enemy of the gospel hates the resurrection with such intensity. Third, he preached the Messiah in verse 3. This Jesus I preach to you is the Christ, the Messiah. Christ refers to, to the Messiah. Paul emphasized that Jesus was Israel's promised Messiah. And this truth was particularly especially for the Jews, because they did not believe in Christ as their Messiah. So this response to Paul's message was impressive, it says here. The people's reception resulted in a great church in the city of Thessalonica. And the crowd that received the gospel message, they were people from all walks of life. There were Jews, there were devout Greeks, and many important women were saved, it says. And you know what? The gospel can save anyone. And it teaches that all need to be saved. Every single living soul needs to be saved. Many think they don't. Well, I'm a good person. I don't do this. I don't do that. You know, I'm going to get into heaven. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says none are good. None are righteous. And that all must be born again through Jesus Christ, if they're going to get into the kingdom of God. 
the response to the gospel message is not always the same. It said here, from some to a great multitude. Some think that no matter where you preach the gospel, if you're faithful, many will be saved. That's not true. Verse 4 says, they joined Paul. True believers want to be with other believers. When people are truly saved, they will be interested in a different crowd than the one that they ran with before they were saved. Now, when somebody says they're saved, but they continue to hang out with mostly the ungodly, then you're justified in question, you know, are you really saved? Are you really saved? If you're still doing the same old things, if you're running around with the same old crowd, are you really saved? Verses 5 through 9. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. And they sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, speaking about the missionaries, Paul and Silas, when they did not find them, they dragged dragged Jason and, and some brethren to the rulers of the city and they cried out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Not everybody enjoyed the harvest or the fruit of Paul's preaching. Not everybody enjoyed seeing all these people coming to Christ, turning their life over to Christ. The unbelieving Jews, it says there, they envied Paul's success. And they, and they were upset because Gentiles and influential women were, coming, or were leaving this synagogue and following Paul. They were really following Christ. Paul had the message, and they were accepting that message. You see, what the Jews didn't like, well, hey, you know, they belong to the synagogue and now they're leaving our church, if you will, our synagogue to follow this this man and, and the gospel that he's preaching. That's what they were angry about. Not that people were getting saved and their lives were being changed. They're leaving our church. Paul hoped that the Gentiles getting saved would cause the Jews to want to study the scriptures. He was hoping that as as the Jews saw these people coming to Christ and their lives were being renewed, revived, and they were becoming new persons, he was hoping that, wow, let's let's check this out. What is it that these people are following? Why are they leaving the synagogue and why are they following Paul and the gospel that he's preaching? But no, instead they get angry and they get a mob together and they want to take the guys and they want to take them to the city officials and, and do something with them. And so again, uh, what happens was that uh, he was hoping that the Jews would now study the scriptures after watching all that was going on. And he was hoping that, that they would find their Messiah, Jesus Christ. But it only caused them to persecute the new church. The Jews wanted to take the missionaries, Paul and Silas and the others, to their cities. It says there in verse 5, the, to the people, to the people which was really the city leaders. So they started a riot to get the, the city leaders' attention because they couldn't find the missionaries. But in, in not being able to find the missionaries, what they did, they grabbed Jason. Jason was hosting Paul and his friends and, 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 and took them in. And so what? because they couldn't find Paul inside, they grabbed Jason. 
instead in some of the believers. And then the Jews accused them of the same things that they accused Jesus of in his trial. And, and uh, again, he was, you know, he was saying that uh, there, there's, there's another king, Jesus. The Jews accusing him uh, of disturbing the peace and promoting treason. And that's what they accused Jesus of. That he was disturbing the peace and he was promoting treason. You know, the, the, the officials say, hey, there's, there's another guy here and, and he's, you know, he's speaking something other than what Caesar's preaching. He, it's another, like another king. So, you know, the word another there in verse 7 means another of a different kind. In other words, he's, you know, he's a king, but not like Caesar. You bet he's not. He's not like any king anyone has ever seen. But our Lord's kingdom isn't political. Jesus' kingdom is not political. It's not of this world. But you see, unsaved people can't understand this. King Jesus does not rule the rulers of this world, does not rule like the rulers of this world. Jesus doesn't conquer with armies and, and massive weapons. That's not the way he conquers. He conquers with ambassadors, not armies. He conquers with truth and love and not weapons. He brings men peace. How? By upsetting the peace and turning things upside down. He conquers through his cross where he died, where he died for a world of lost sinners, including his enemies. He died for even for those who hate him. Romans 5, 6-10, Paul said, Jesus died for the ungodly of which we all qualify. The mob here, it was riled up. They were upset because they couldn't find Paul inside us. So they figured, you know what? Let's settle for Jason. The one who was taking him in and, and, and hosting them. Jason had to put up bail. And then he had to make the promise that, that Paul and Silas would leave the town and not come back. Paul saw this, this ruling here as Satan's doing to hinder God's work. But it didn't work. It didn't hinder the Thessalonican church at all. Verses 10 through 15. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea or to go to the coast. But both Paul and Silas, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who concluded or conducted or escorted Paul to the coast brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, then they departed. So Paul is now in Berea. The Berean Jews, it says here, notice, were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians. They welcomed Paul's message with great enthusiasm. But they did something that is a great thing that we should all follow. It says they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. 
this, we need to do that. Paul came to the Bereans. He brought the gospel message. They were excited to hear it, but they said, hey, they read the scriptures every day to figure out or to find out whether or not what Paul was saying was true. And that is so important for Christians to do. Search the scriptures. Find out what the guy up front is preaching, whether it's true or not. Because if you don't know the scriptures, you aren't going to know if this guy is preaching some false doctrine to you, some weird stuff. And there's a lot of weird stuff being preached in churches out there, and people are just following along to their detriment. We are to be following Jesus Christ and the truth of the word of God, but if you don't know the word of God, how are you going to know when somebody fools you or, or tries to deceive you? See, this differed from the Jews in Thessalonica. In verse 4, it says, Only some believed, while the others, or most of them, were jealous of Paul, and they stirred up trouble. The Bereans' interest in the Word of God, it says, resulted in many Jews and Greeks being saved. Also, a lot of prominent women in Thessalonica and Berea got saved. And once again, the Jewish uh, uh, unbelievers, they did the same thing before. They came to Thessalonica. They, 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 they stirred up problems. They came from Thessalonica. They came there. They forced Paul to leave town. And Silas and Timothy went to Berea to help start a new church there while Paul went on to the south. Now, some of the brothers, some of the other Christians went with Paul to make sure that he arrived there safely. Paul told his friends to tell Silas and Timothy, hey, Tell them to join me in Athens as soon as they come. And according to the first Thessalonians chapter 3, Silas and Timothy did rejoin Paul at Athens. Silas was also ordered by Paul to leave Athens and then meet him at Corinth. Now, Paul goes to Athens, which was the intellectual capital of all of history. The city of Aristotle, the city of Plato, the city of Socrates. And the Athenian, uh, the Athenian architecture was alone itself overwhelming. Today they say the Parthenon, the temple of Athena, is considered the most architecturally advanced building in history. Look at verse 16. It says, Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So while Paul was waiting in Athens for Timothy and Silas to join him, it says his spirit was provoked. That means his spirit was, was stirred up inside of him. Why? Because he was in the intellectual center of the world where there was over 3,000 altars and temples built to different gods. The temple, <clears throat> the temple dedicated to Aphrodite had temple prostitutes all over the place. It was man's work to justify sexual promiscuity. The temple of Zeus was for those with a macho kind of mentality who were into cruelty. There was the temple of Bacchus. It was for those who enjoyed alcohol. Paul's heart was stirred inside of him. But notice what Paul did not do. He didn't go out and get a bunch of fellow Christians and say, hey, let's go protesting. Let's get together and let's start a political movement or a protest against idolatry or let's gather a group of people to stand up against the culture. That's not how you bring about real change. Only Jesus can change a human heart. And when hearts are changed, people will change and society will change. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We don't war against sin like, like the world wars against uh, every other thing that they don't like or, or they do like. You know, they don't get together and, and, and chant and make protest signs and march around and, 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 you know, holler out at everybody. That's not your way you change the world. That's not the way you change people. Paul said, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, they're not, they're not the, the, the weapons that the world uses. He says, but our weapons are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Mighty in God. What are our weapons? What are our resources? Prayer, the word of God. They're mighty in God for pulling down those strongholds, for casting down arguments and cast down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Verse 17. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Notice that. So what did Paul do about the idolatry that broke his heart? It says he reasoned with all of the people he spoke to every day. Notice he spoke to the people every day. He reasoned. He presented intelligent talk with them. He talked. They asked questions. He answered. It's like it said earlier in verses 1 through 4. He reasoned with the people. And in the church and on the street, Paul talked to the people. He talked to the people every day about the idolatry that had a, a, a chokehold on the people. And like Paul, we are to dispute, we are to reason, and we are to discuss in depth the things of God. We are to tell them why we believe. And again, not that, you know, what we think, you know, this is what we believe because, and this is what we believe because the Bible says, plain and simple, and anything other than what the Bible says is not true. It's not, it's false. And we have to be bold enough to make that stand. It's God's word. Verse 18. <clears throat> then <clears throat> a certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered them. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. See, they hadn't heard about Jesus and the resurrection. He says, this guy seems to be talking about some foreign god. The Epicureans and the Stoics. When they heard Paul's preaching, they got involved in the debate. Now, the Epicureans were the philosophers who said, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. That's pretty much what a lot of people you hear them say. Might as well live the good life because after this, it's over. That's a, a, a really unfulfilling philosophy that they had or anybody can have. To, set us, to, to satisfy yourself sensually, to live the good life, to, to take it easy. And, you know, how many, how many people have found that philosophy to be satisfying? Then there, the, there were the Stoics. These were like fitness trainers. They, 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 they said, you've got to be disciplined. Let go of anything that's emotional, sensual, or material. So the Epicureans said, enjoy life. The Stoics said, endure life. Paul preached eternal life. Which neither one of them, the, the Epicureans or Stoics, neither... Neither one of them knew anything about eternal life. You know, where do you go when you die? I mean, don't you think that's an important question? 
Neither the Epicureans or the Stoics believed in eternal life. So Paul's talk about the resurrection, that's what got their attention. Look at verses 19 through 20. And they took him, that is the Epicureans and the Stoics, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. The Areopagus was Mars Hill. It was, an, it was an elevated place in the center of Athens. It was the place where all the philosophers would hang out and where the Board of Education and religion met every day. You know, it's interesting that the Athenians, the smartest men in history, in the world's opinion, said religion and education are inseparable. Look at how far we've strayed from that today. Government says church and state. You know, you can't, you can't have them together. Religion and, 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 and education, you've got to separate them. You can't have Bibles. You can't pray. It's taken out of the schools. It's, again, it, it's, it's odd that, that kids cannot have Bibles in school for the most part, but you can give prisoners a, a Bible in jail. Shouldn't it be the other way around? You give the kids the Bibles, you teach them the Word of God to keep them out of jail. But now again, we've got things so twisted in our country. Verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time notice, in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. You know, and people today are waiting for some new thing. Some, some new thing, some new leader, something new that can, can help this country to straighten it out. The Athenians constantly studied and continually talked about new things. But it's been said that if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. What the Athenians needed and what's needed today isn't some new truth or new understanding. Because Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all been done before. It's all been tried before. We need to get back to the old truth, the old standards, the principles of the Word of God that have been with us since the beginning. And if you're searching for some new book or some seminar or conference or teaching that might unlock the mystery of spirituality and, and answer all of your questions about life, forget it. Forget it. Because you will be on a wild goose chase and you'll be more confused than you are now. Paul warned that in the last days people will not endure sound doctrine. But they will gather together teachers who will tickle their ears with some strange teaching. And that's what's going on today. In other words, people want to hear what uh, people want to be told what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And there's a lot, of going, a lot of that going out today. Again, one of the reasons why the Word of God is so... There's so many people hostile against the Word of God because it tells truth. And people don't like truth. Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Paul started his message here with a compliment. He said, Hey, you guys, I see that you're very religious. 
Then he told them about the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the government of God, and the grace of God. Verse 23. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I will proclaim to you. He begins by telling them about the greatness of God. He is the creator. Even though, uh, even though the, the, the Athenians had 3,000 altars, and temples in the city. They still worried that they might miss or forget somebody. So they dedicated a huge altar. As Paul said, hey, I notice you have this altar dedicated to the unknown God. Because there were so many, they were afraid they might miss one. So this one was for the one that they may have missed. And Paul says, well, you know what? I want to tell you about this God, this unknown God, the one you don't know. Because if they didn't know this God, how could they worship him? Or how could that God help them? Because it was this God that Paul talked to them about. Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And he said, the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is seeking those to worship him in spirit and in truth. So if you can worship him in truth, that means you can worship him falsely as well. But Jesus said, my father's looking for those who worship him in truth. So not all worship is acceptable to God. It must be true. It must be based on, 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 on truth. Worship is not a free-for-all. It, worship isn't something that, that you decide to do and, and you think, well, this is the way I worship and <clears throat> it's good enough. And you better find out who you're worshiping and why you're worshiping him. Worship is not an anything-goes kind of a worship. And like I said, in this message now, beginning with verse 24, Paul shared four basic truths about God. First, the greatness of God. He is creator. Look at verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it. He begins by telling him, God's creator. He's speaking of the greatness of God. Every thinking person asks, where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Now, science tries to answer the first question, and philosophy struggles with the second question. But only the Christian faith has a satisfactory answer to all three questions. The Epicureans, who were atheists, they said that, 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 that everything was matter, and matter was, had always existed. The Stoics said that everything was God, the spirit of the universe. God didn't create anything. He only organized what was there, and then he imposed some law and order on it. Paul boldly said, hey, in the beginning, God. And if you can believe those first four words in Genesis, you won't have any trouble believing anything else the Bible says. God made the world, and he made everything in it, and he's the Lord of everything that he made. And he's not a distant God. He's not a God who lives far, far away. He's not removed from his creation. Neither is God restricted. He's not locked into creation. You can't confine him. He's too great to be confined to man-made temples. But he's not too great to be concerned about you and your needs. What are your needs this morning? You know... 
after Paul was sharing all of this, it would have been great to see the, uh, the, the, the uh, expression of the, uh, of the council members here and how they reacted when, when Paul said this about the temples because right there on Acropolis were several shrines dedicated to Athena. When he said, hey, God can't be restricted to, to, to temples or to man-made things. So this must have blown away the Athenians there when, he heard, when they heard Paul say this. In verse 25 now. Nor is God worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Here Paul now speaks of the goodness of God. He is the provider. Men might be proud of themselves for being religious and serving God, but truth is, it's God who serves men. God serves man. Jesus said of himself, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. So if God is God, then what does he need from a man? He's self-sufficient. God's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything that man can give him. There's nothing man can give him that he needs or wants. The only thing he wants that you can give him is your heart. Your heart. That's all he wants. He doesn't want anything that you own. He doesn't want anything you possess. Not only do the temples not contain God, but the surfaces in the temples don't add anything to God. There's nothing that we can do to add to God in anything that we do. He's all that he is. And I remember being in church one day as a young boy. You know, I saw the priest going up to the altar. And up on the altar, there was this little box. And with a little curtain. And he went inside and he pulled out the chalice. And I remember asking him, Mom, what's in that little box? And she says, well, that's where God lives. And, you know, and, and bringing up in, in religion, you, you, a lot of people don't know. And, well, that's like, I, but even as a young boy, I thought, that's awful little place to live. <laughs> but, you know, that's what I was taught. I had my doubts even as a young boy. But, you know, I thought, I just don't know. You know, but again, you know, it's because we're taught so many things many times that, again, that, that isn't the word of God, that isn't truth. It's religion. It's a man-made religion. And so, and many people feel bad <clears throat> when they hear the truth of the word of God, <clears throat> again, because it goes against what they've been taught even though it was wrong. And that's what keeps them from coming to the truth. And in these two brief statements here where it says he is creator and he is provider, Paul has already totally wiped out Greece's entire religious system. God is the one who gives us what we need. Notice what it says there. He gives us life. He gives us breath. He gives us all things. God is the source of every good and perfect gift, James says. He gave us life and he sustains life by his goodness. It's God's goodness that should lead men to repentance. God, you are so good. You are so good that I want to give my life to you. But instead of worshiping the creator and instead of glorifying him, what do men do? They worship his creation. And they glorified themselves. Verses 26 to 29 now. And he has made from one blood 
every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him or you know, reach for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. Notice that, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped uh, by art and man's devising. Here in, verse, in this, these three verses, 26, 7, 20, uh, 26 through 29, he speaks of the government of God. God is ruler. The gods of the Greeks were distant beings who didn't care about men or men's problems or needs. But the God of creation is also the God of history and geography. He, notice verse 26, says, He created mankind from one blood. We are all connected. We're all related. We all came from Adam and Eve. We are all brothers and sisters in that sense. So that all nations are made of the same stuff and of the same blood. The Greeks felt they were a special race. They felt they were different from other nations. But Paul said, no, uh-uh. we're all from one blood. Even their land that they admired so much was a gift from God. It's not in man's power. But it's the sovereignty of God that decides the rise and the fall of nations, the rise and the fall of leaders. And we see that the government of man, we see what it's done to this country. Like I said, from the, it, it is a mess right now. It's a mess. Violent, divided, perverted, twisted. But that's man. Put him in charge and that's what you get. But God is not far away, Paul said in verse 27. He's not far from each one of us. The psalmist said, where can I go from your spirit, O Lord? Or where can, I, where can I flee from your presence? You cannot go anywhere where God is not. Ever. So men should seek God. That's what Paul said. And they should come to know him in truth. And here Paul quoted from the poet uh, Epimenides. It says, for in him we live, we move, and we have our being. God made us in his image, so it's foolish for us to think or to make gods in our own image. We are made in the image of God. Again, it's foolish for us to make gods in our own image. But you know what? That's what man does if he's his own God. We have a great example of this idea. I read where the, <clears throat> the natives of Papua New Guinea, they would carve out their own gods. These natives would make their own gods. The tribe had a congenital birth defect. They had one leg shorter than the other. And when they carved out and made their little gods, guess what? One leg was shorter than the other. Because we, make, we, we are and we make defective gods. Greek religion was nothing but the making and the worshiping of gods who were patterned after men and who acted like men. Paul not only showed the foolishness of temples and their rituals, but he also showed the foolishness of idolatry. And Paul said idols are nothing but the creation of man's imagination. Paul said later on in Corinthians, they're demons. You're worshiping demons by worshiping idols. Verses 30 through 34. 
Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day on which He will give uh, he will judge the world in righteousness notice by the man speaking of Jesus Christ whom he has ordained he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some mocked notice while others said oh we will hear you again on this matter so Paul departed from among them however some men joined him and believed among them Dionysus uh, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris and others with him Lastly, Paul speaks here in verses 30 through 34 about the grace of God. He is Savior. And in Paul finishing his message, he summarized the clear marks, the things that, make God, that mark God's grace. And for centuries, God was patient with man's sin and ignorance. Now, because God has been, was patient with man's sin and ignorance for so long, that didn't mean that he wasn't guilty and that there wasn't going to be any judgment. It, was, it wasn't that they were off the hook. It's just that God held back his wrath for so long against man's guilt of sin. But in due time, God sent the Savior, the only Savior. And now, God says, now that I've sent the Savior to deal with your sins, he commands that all men are to repent of their foolish ways. Jesus was Savior. He was crucified, raised from the dead. One day he's going to return. He's going to take his church to be with him and to judge the world. And he proved to everyone by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. He's going to be the judge when the end times comes, when, you know, when it's time for men to be judged. So it was the doctrine of the resurrection that most of the members of the council couldn't accept. To a Greek, the body was only a prison. And, and the sooner a person left his body, the happier they would be. So their thinking is, why raise a dead body and live it in again? And why would God bother with personally judging men? What Paul taught was definitely totally contrary to Greek philosophy. They believed in immortality, but they didn't believe in resurrection. This is how Paul's message there on Mars Hill ended in verses 32 through 34. It says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, not that some mocked, others said, We will hear you again on this matter. And some men joined him and believed. Notice three different responses to Paul's message. Some laughed. Some mocked. Paul didn't take his message seriously. Others were interested but wanted to hear more. And then a small group accepted what Paul preached. They believed on Jesus and they were saved. The question is this morning, what group do you fall into? Do you mock the word of God? Do you laugh at the word of God? Or are you interested in it and you want to hear more of it? Or are you in that group which accepts the word of God believes on Jesus Christ and are saved. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you so much for the wonderful word of God. Father, we thank you that we have this wonderful book, the Bible, God's word. Plain and simple, God's word. 
Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit has spoken to hearts this morning, God. Especially to those who may have may not know you, but want to know you. We pray that this passage here has made it clear who you are and what we are. You are God, you are holy and righteous, and we are men, sinners and unclean before you, God. Apart from Jesus Christ, we'll never see the kingdom of God. And if you're here this morning, or you're watching on TV, or maybe outside, and the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart, and you want to know Jesus Christ, you want to make Him your Lord, you want to make Him your Savior this morning, you want Him to come into your life, and you want to become a Christian, I'm going to say this prayer out loud. And if you want to receive Christ, you say this prayer to the Lord with all of your heart. You can just pray after me, dear Jesus. Please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to follow you all the days of my life. And thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.